0: That's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions.
0: Eighteen plus.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for July twenty first, twenty sixteen. The Your Word Is Your Bond edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm here in Washington alone because Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is at home in New Haven. Hello, Emily.
3: Hello, David.
2: And John Dickerson of Face the Nation is—I don't know—I can't imagine where he is. Where could he be? He's on right. vacation this week. On vacation, right? He's been very yes, slow week for him. Uh, where are you, John? Exactly at this moment.
1: On a hunch, I went to Poughkeepsie. At at this moment, I am uh, in the Radisson Hotel across from the Quick and Loans Arena, where last night Ted Cruz.
2: Had a, an exciting moment of um, serendipity. We will talk about that on the show, on this week's GabFest, a convention gala. We'll spend our first segment reveling in the biggest, big, the big people in Cleveland, what to make of Ted Cruz's non-endorsement, of uh, Mike Pence, of Melania. Our second segment will... We'll talk more about the Squires of Cleveland, to use Emily's nice phrase, the Lackeys and the Screamers, the Giuliani's and the Christie's and the Scott Bayos. Then our third segment, we'll talk about the extraordinary spectacle unfolding at Fox News where Roger Ailes appears to be on the brink of an exit. We will have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we'll talk about the gross Twitter behavior aimed at the actress and comedian Leslie Jones and how much... Does Twitter need to police, it, police itself against racists and sexists and other jerks? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash gabfest plus. The Republican convention is unfolding in Ohio in a kind of fever dream. As we are taping on Thursday morning, Donald Trump has uh, been nominated, but he has not yet given his big Thursday night speech accepting the nomination. Though it um, keeps
3: popping up everywhere.
2: He does keep appearing. He is there. He is very present. The convention so far has been strange, I think would be the one adjective. So there's been uh, the Melania Trump plagiarism controversy. We can talk about that. There's been a ton of extremely negative uh, language aimed at Hillary Clinton, including suggestions that she be in jail. There has been a, a very, I would say, anodyne, competent speech from the vice presidential nominee Mike Pence. And let's start with the big news out of last night, which is Ted Cruz, John Dickerson. Ted Cruz did not endorse Donald Trump in his speech. Did, did Donald Trump and the RNC know that he was not endorsing him before he got on that stage? They did know. They knew uh, both in general terms that he wasn't going to endorse Because
1: that was never a condition of his speaking as the same way it wasn't a condition of the speaking of several other people who were asked to speak, some of whom did speak and some of whom just still declined to speak. I talked to one senator uh, several days before. We all got out here and the senator said, you know, it's really weird that the chairman of the Republican Party, Ryan Priebus, is saying you can give your speech, but you don't have to endorse. And the senator was was saying that like that sort of just didn't work. In any event, they knew in general terms he wasn't going to endorse. They also had the text of his speech at least two hours beforehand. And there's some confusion about. Um, so there were some early reports that 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 Cruz went off script, which he did not do. So just to explain to people what he said is Ted Cruz basically gave a speech that sounded that barely mentioned Donald Trump and congratulated him for going over the top. And then he talked at length about one particular officer who was uh, shot, killed in Dallas. He talked about the challenge for America that America faced and that constitutional principles and the bedrock principles of the party should be upheld. And then he said in November, vote your conscience up and down the ticket and that was the line that got everybody fired up in the New York delegation, which was right in front of him. And we could talk about why saying vote your conscience should cause such an uproar. They were yelling things like endorse, and he uh, powered through, and, and though he had come on the stage to thunderous applause of a kind that didn't greet, certainly didn't greet Mitch McConnell, didn't greet Paul Ryan. I mean, it was it was his crowd when he started. He left to the sound of booze and theatrically amusing in that an odd piece of choreography. As the booze are filling the hall, Cruz is leaving. Trump is coming in. It was it was not the moment they were looking for when they launched
2: this uh, convention. Well, we'll get deeper into Trump uh, to Cruz in a second. But what is your uh, general temperature taking of this convention? It's on TV. It looks a little weird. Alternately, kind of crazy and explosive, and then desultory. But how does it feel in the place? Something is a little off.
1: So there has been ex- a heavy, heavy anti-Hillary Clinton vibe here. Just speaker after speaker attacking her on Benghazi, on the emails, on uh, the Clinton dramas for all the way from Bill Clinton's presidency. That is the constant drumbeat. One of the things convention planners told us was that this was going to be about learning the inner Donald Trump. In order to clear the the bar and make people think he was possible, you know, could be actually inhabit the office of the presidency. But the, the main attribute we learned about Donald Trump from the first several nights of the convention is that he is not Hillary Clinton, which doesn't really tell us anything about Donald Trump. When he first showed up in his uh, silhouette on Monday night at the convention before his wife spoke, the place went crazy. So there is a there's a lot of passion for Donald Trump, but there are all of these signs of disunity underneath. The, the one before Ted Cruz had his moment was that uh, basically the Trump campaign picked a fight with John Kasich, the very popular governor of the crucial swing state of Ohio. That fight continues. That doesn't seem very smart, A, because Ohio is important, and B, because just This is supposed to be a week about unity. The pick of Mike Pence was all about uniting Donald Trump and his idiosyncratic outsider campaign, uniting it to an existing part of the Republican coalition, showing that there was a a ticket that could kind of not be so volatile, plug into an existing structure of the campaign and kind of get its act together before the November election. And the chaos we saw after Ted Cruz, although Donald Trump couldn't necessarily control that, is the kind of chaos that Republicans have been worrying about would be just kind
2: of always attaching itself to the Cruz campaign. Emily, what did you make of Cruz's non-endorsement? Do you think that's significant? It's clearly he is making a bet on 2020 for himself, that he he was the person who didn't fall in line behind Trump, who will then go ahead and lose the election. Did it seem brave? Did it seem smart? Did it seem to to you know severely undermine the Trump candidacy?
3: It was a little bit brave. I mean, you know, he's not, like, taking a bullet, but it was unexpected and un—and even, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to me that they had the speech beforehand and they thought that, that they still wanted him on stage. I mean, Trump said a few weeks ago, if you're going to speak, then you're going to endorse me. So, I mean, he says a lot of things that he doesn't mean and changes his mind about, but it did seem, in the moment, quite dramatic. And if the storyline out of the convention is, like, plagiarism and, you know, you can't even get the guy you put on stage during primetime who gives actually quite good rousing speech, I thought. I mean, certainly better than Mike Pence's speech. You can't get that guy behind you. Like, it it just seems weak, right? And someone, I think maybe Josh Marshall was writing last night that Trump is supposed to be the master of every domain and that Cruz kind of came into Trump's house and stomped him and that is not a very alpha male thing to let happen to you. It'll be interesting to see what Trump has to say or tweet about it today. In the meantime, though, we have to reserve one moment for the crazy New York Times interview that went up last night or this morning in which Trump (laughs) is, again, dismissing, you know, long treasured American agreements and allies and talking about not protecting the Baltic states against Putin. I mean, it's just he (laughs) he's not um, he's not sounding tamed.
2: John, Mike Pence was the, the headliner on Wednesday night. And watching at home, that, that was actually—I confess—the only speech so far I've watched all the way through. It seemed like the F seven, like sort of generic anodyne. I'm going to give a very capable speech. He—he's—he's a, a very politician-looking politician. He's—he's politician. He's right. just like a elderly white guy. He said smart, you know. He said intelligently phrased things perfectly. Capably was it the the speech that that the Trump campaign needed?
1: <laughs> well. I mean, in a sense, I mean, it, it, yes. Although it's it just not not enough to to overcome the challenges that are being faced. So, in the last two election uh, re- elections, Republicans have picked vice presidential candidates to add pizzazz to the ticket. So, Paul Ryan, loved by conservatives. Uh, was an effort to kind of excite them all about a Romney candidacy they weren't so excited about. Same with Sarah Palin. This pick was picked to do the opposite—to de-jazz the the uh, the ticket. I kept talking. Uh, a lot of the activists and party chairs I talked to, they kept using the word "stabilize." You know, Donald Trump. Sed- is a I, th- volatile... I thought it was
2: sedative, sedative, <laughs> sedative.
1: Uh, so Donald Trump is is a volatile candidate, and and. Pence was going to kind of calm him down, both specifically the Pence pick was going to calm him down, but it was also a symbol that Trump got the message, that he recognized that he had to do certain obligatory things to run a, a national campaign, that he couldn't pick another kind of um, unpredictable figure like Christie or Gingrich, that he kind of listened. And, and the, the point about Pence is that um, even, let's say, after, and I think after the Ted Cruz booing in the hall the Pence pick kind of put things back on the beam. Uh, in other words, it connected Trump's outside campaign to an important part of the Republican coalition, the grassroots evangelical movement kinds of conservatives, all who love Mike Pence. If, the thing is, that Ted, what Ted Cruz did was all about Ted Cruz. It's not Wait. like he represented some... Part of the party necessarily. I mean, he does represent a part of the party, but so does Mike Pence represents a roughly equivalent part of the party. And so Mike Pence is validating Donald Trump. The people who like Pence are feeling good about Donald Trump. What Cruz does is Cruz becomes a symbol of the existing uh, unity problem. But the real unity problem Donald Trump faces is with like John Kasich voters, not as much with people who want to win and see conservative Supreme Court justices, which is the kind of more likely to be a Ted Cruz voter. Mike Pence could never do enough to overcome the cruz trump issue. There was nothing in Mike Pence's speech that could be equally dramatic.
3: So why did they let Cruz on stage knowing that he was going to say that stuff?
1: Well, this is a real question. I was uh, madly texting and, um, and, and messaging people last night while we were in the middle of the broadcast. And it was clear that nobody had an answer. One thing I heard from inside the Trump campaign was, we got the speech at 630. We couldn't kick him off the stage." That would have been a bigger story. The Cruz camp says that there was no pushback. By the way, we got to stop the – just sort of stop everything and say, vote your conscience should not be a threatening line. I mean, presumably – and Newt Gingrich came out and tried to clean this up. So it went Cruz, Eric Trump, Newt Gingrich. Gingrich did go off script and said what people missed about Ted Cruz's remarks was that he was saying basically – vote your conscience for a principled constitutionalist, and Newt Gingrich said, there's only one thing that could mean, and that's Donald Trump. If the crowd had reacted that way, if they just applauded when Cruz said, vote your conscience, we wouldn't have this story. But the fact that the New York delegation booed him, and then other people started saying endorse, endorse, which nobody should have expected him to do, it created this moment. And it's a fascinating question as to whether the Trump forces um, whipped up the booze and tried to, to punish and humiliate Cruz. If they did, it was the dumbest thing they've ever done because it created this moment. Then you have Newt Gingrich trying to fix it, you know, and it just creates more things to talk about, all of which send the signal that this is a chaotic Volatile, unpredictable, non-unified party, and that's basically the exact opposite of
2: what they're trying to do here in Cleveland. Emily, one of the things that I find jarring about this convention, and I, I was mo- I was maybe most struck because I was watching with one of my kids last night, and mm. it's it's a little bit painful to watch it with a child. Is that the the tone of conventions that I always remember is of sort of corny uplift. Corny in a good way, celebration and earnestness and, you know, they're, not to say that they, they don't ever say unkind words about their opponents, but it's really about look at this positive uh, vision of the world that we embody. Look how we're, you know, tr- marching towards uh, victory and, and the animating emotion tends to be hope and joy and there is so little of that coming out of the Republicans that I'm just struck that the, to run on so much on fear and anger is a very weird and risky bet. And and if it wins, it, it's going to be scary. Uh, but even if they lose, it's kind of depressing and scary.
3: Right. And I don't know about you, but for me, listening to these chants of lock her up about Hillary Clinton is um, hateful and ugly and dark in this way that makes me feel like you know. The mob is restless, and uh, I don't want to turn my country over to these people and I Chris Christie has just uh, is making me um, gape every time he starts talking. he's in this attack dog mode that is so unattractive. I can't believe that he's doing it. I mean, he seems to be relishing the task. But you know, after all of this, like begging for the vice presidency and being Trump's lackey and whatever to see someone, I feel like I'm watching Game of Thrones. Like he's the dog that Ramsey Bolton is unleashing upon us.
1: Yeah, by the way, in terms of Game, game of Thrones, the, uh, the hashtag of the Ted wedding is uh, being applied to last <laughs> night's um, his last night's betrayal, which I guess is too, uh, is, is just too good to, uh, the, the number of Game of Thrones, by the way, the number of Game of Thrones analogies here is, uh,
2: uh, is quite high. Can we not go there? Can we not? The Ted wedding is a good, let's leave it there. I thought
1: I, just,
3: I was being so clever. It turns out I was just like, I thought you are being fine. You're being fine. Whoa, you're
2: fine. What's your uh, question, David? My question is just the same question to you. Is it, the thing is feels so freaking dark. Yeah. Oh, it's incredibly dark. What's up with that? Why are they so, why is it so (laughs) dark? Why isn't there any like the, the America's the greatest country, shining city on a hill, you know, it's, I know they're party out of power, but whoosh. I mean,
1: well, first of all, people really feel this way they feel like hillary clinton is responsible for the death of you know the american ambassador in libya and and uh, others at the consulate in benghazi they feel like she's gotten away with murder for years so there's that actual passionate dislike of hillary clinton more than 50 it's i can't remember the exact number in in our cbs battleground tracker poll but like well over 50% are voting for donald trump purely because they don't like hillary clinton so if you're trying to unify the party that 's a good place to go. The problem is yes,
3: it is their best hope of that for
1: sure the The problem is um, that and it also gets people in the hall whipped up, and you need that so So if you think of conventions as both pep rallies and p r stunts, the Hillary attacking is all about the pep rally. But the problem is it seems to me that after you give your you know nineteenth speech about Hillary Clinton. Everybody sounds the same. So you're you're losing opportunities to tell, to say what you're saying, which is talk about the party, talk about the nominee, talk about what solutions the Republican Party is going to bring to America and to solve these problems that challenge people. Stuff that's part of the public relations effort in a convention, which is pitching to the rest of the country. Hillary Clinton's negatives are already high enough. So it doesn't seem like any of this is, uh, it's just a sign of how much unity they need to how how much the unity challenge exists in the Republican Party that they had to keep going on this. It's a mistake. And also, I don't think you can recover it. In other words, Donald Trump could give a great, huge, exciting, optimistic speech, but I bet
2: I just that's not his channel. And so uh, it's a yeah, it's you know also weird and just a very small way. The Republicans do control the House and the Senate and also have had a there's been a conservative majority on the Supreme Court for most of uh, for the last you know 30 years effectively or 25 years the way the the presentation is we are a party out of power the, the way in which the kind of legi- the role of the legislative branch and its complicity in whatever is happening is so ignored the the, the 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 way it's presented is we have a we're subject to a monarch the monarch is Barack Obama who is a who has total control of this country. And we're all victims of it, rather than there's several branches of government, two of which are controlled by our party effectively. And yet still, things are not what we want them to be. I find that dissonance odd. Did that strike you at all, Emily?
3: Yeah, I noticed it in Mike Penn's speech last night. He was talking about how the Democrats have ruined education and I think ruined public safety. And it was, he was talking about things that states and cities actually control. So it was really weird because the Republicans are in control of most of the state houses. And it makes the Republicans seem like they're just sort of hapless bystanders, you know, wringing their hands as the country shoots down sub tube into its own destruction. And I know that it doesn't, it's not adequate to say, but look, unemployment is, you know, or the economy is recovering and things aren't so bad because for a lot of people, wages are stagnant and inequality is rising. And those are real wounds that people feel. And yet the, um, the total blaming of the Democrats and also this idea, you know, from Rudy Giuliani on the first night that many, that, that most Americans feel unsafe, like crime is way down. And to the extent that there are people who really are living in crime-ridden neighborhoods, they tend to be poor black people or not the people who are at the Republican convention. It, it, there's just this weird disconnect of um, so much blaming and, and a lot of, um, I think, downright falsehoods about, um, you know, just like basic facts of who's done what.
2: This episode of The Gap Fest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. but it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. and they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GabFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The first couple of days of this convention um, were delightfully, in some sense, defined by Melania Trump's speech, which she had been long awaited, much anticipated, and was delivered perfectly, capably, then uh, revealed to have been plagiarized in part from a Michelle Obama, speech of the of the same ilk back in two thousand eight. This was just one of several of the nice sort of side drama, sideshow dramas of. The first couple of days of the convention, Rudy Giuliani's and Chris Christie's quite emphatic speeches, being a couple of the others. Let's talk a little bit about this plagiarism. Did it matter when you, to you when you found that out, or in what way did it matter to you that you found out that she had robbed from that she'd robbed from Michelle Obama?
3: Well, I was a little surprised that it lasted as a story. I, I this is the kind of story I love because it's so funny, and you know, there's this this. Sort of poignant irony The Melania Trump is not someone who has relished the spotlight. She has, you know, really not seemed to want to participate very much in this campaign. She comes out looking very beautiful. I'm sure she did put a lot of thought and attention into putting herself together. And she and her husband, they are very good at being celebrities. Like, they really know how to manage entrances and the adulation of the crowd and all of that. And I like her accent and it all seemed to go over so well. And a little bit of me was like rooting for her that, you know, in her big moment, she was coming through and then it just all collapsed. It was like, you know, baked Alaska just falling flat at the end of the dinner party. And of course, you know, the idea that of all the
2: Baked people, Alaska doesn't what? fall. Baked Alaska doesn't fall. It
3: doesn't sink a little bit. What happens to it? It's sort of souffle-like, isn't it? <laughs> it's
2: a gloopy mound. Oh, it a core of uh, ice cream in it.
3: Oh, Okay. I feel like something um, oh, it could melt. How a about souffle,
2: that? a soufflé? A soufflé. She could have been a, she was very soufflé like. All right. Anyway, yes. Sorry. Let's Go. use
3: that dessert <laughs> metaphor. Uh, Her soufflé fell. Just um and then of course, you know, of all the platitudes that she stole it had to be from like the Democratic First Lady who the whole convention, you know, stands deeply opposed to. So what do you guys think about plagiarism when the plagiarism consists of stealing hackneyed lines that are just (laughs) slightly different from every other thing that every other wife has said at such a convention? Like, do we really care about the intellectual theft here?
2: No, but- Well, I'll take my quick run at it, which is the stealing of the hackneyed point, as you say, is not that big a deal. It really, I think, just bespeaks a kind of incompetence and disorganization that is problematic. It's It's really the the way they, A, didn't catch it, and B, didn't own up to it was the problem. John?
1: Well, so I, yeah, they, that's all true. It, for a campaign that has had challenges with the truth, this exacerbated a weakness when it was supposed to, again, these are public relations events. This was the crown jewel of the first night, and it was occluded by the off-message uh, questions of plagiarism. But the plagiarism is actually the small part. The big Political thing that happened with that speech, which has now been compounded by the cruz' conscience clause um, is took all those Republicans who were nervous about the Trump campaign and whether it was ship shape and whether it could be buttoned up and not continue to produce unpredictable moments of drama cycle after cycle, news cycle after news cycle. They thought things had kind of, you know, gotten buttoned up with the Pence pick and okay, yeah, Trump's rollout of Pence in the speech that talked more about other things than Pence was a little weird. And then the 60 Minutes interview had a strange quality to it, but that's okay. It's going to be okay. And then the picking a fight with the Ohio governor on the eve of the convention, okay, that wasn't so great, but it's going to be okay. And then then the, there's the plagiarism thing. It's for Republicans who are trying to, to feel okay about the purely political part of the Trump campaign, not whether he was a good nominee or not, but whether he was going to be unpredictable and ruin other Republicans trying to run, those people, many of whom write big checks to the party and write checks to other Republicans, were reminded afresh of the drama that attends the Trump campaign. I think the the Cruz thing was a decision Ted Cruz made. That was not, I mean, the Trump campaign could have played it better. I was talking to One smart GOP strategist who said, look, if they saw the speech at 630 and they knew he wasn't going to endorse, they should just have told all the delegates, we're going to just applaud this speech and move on. Don't make it a thing we're going to say Ted Cruz came out, you know, we beat him, and he decided to show up at Donald Trump's convention. And isn't that amazing? It was night of the vanquished. And we brought the party together because Rubio spoke, Walker spoke, Cruz spoke, and they all are for Donald Trump. And we're going to ride into victory in November. And they could have done that in two hours, easily, easily, because they have people walking the the aisles in green neon hats. They're you know getting everybody to applaud at the right time.
3: They're like the bar mitzvah party people who get everyone into the right mood. Uh,
1: and so they could have to... <laughs> John just John just let that go. <laughs> well, no, I, 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 It's I,
3: true. I, That's what they look like to me. Yeah,
1: um, yeah. I didn't really have a, a joke, so I just thought I'd let it go. So anyway, that's why the, or that's what I was hearing from people here in the wake of the plagiarism
2: business. But
3: it's so entertaining. I mean, really, like as long as these people don't actually have to run the the country and the world, they have really entertained us.
2: I used to feel that way, Emily. I don't think I feel that way anymore. It is not, not
3: even about Melania's plagiarism. Like really, what's at stake?
2: It's too dark. Speaking of dark, the I think the the strangest moment in this convention, which has been filled with strange ones, and I'm, John, I'm interested in how you felt in the room, was the Chris Christie peroration, guilty or not guilty, guilty or not guilty, the scathing uh, attack on Hillary Clinton, not merely an attack, uh, an indictment of Hillary Clinton, which the crowd was highly animated by, and which you're very good, John, on sort of how moments fit in kind of the long arc of American political history. Did it seem different to you to have a convention that was bane for the imprisonment of the opposing candidate, or did that just seem that's kind of more or less normed? In 1988, at the Democratic convention,
1: Ted Kennedy gave a famous speech in which he said talked about a number of problems in the Reagan years. And after each one, he said, Where was George? And the crowd got the hint and started to respond. So every time Kennedy would then say something and they would say where was George. And this was seen and cited by James Baker, Bush's famous and highly skilled political man, was seen as a as a huge offensive into the gutter moment. All he was saying is where was George. And by that standard, this is like 50 times more aggressive. Jeff Flake, the Republican from Arizona who has spoken out several different times to kind of try and You know, he's not endorsing Donald Trump. He um, is sort of trying to be the conscience of uh, conservatism, wrote a thing um, after that, after Christie, in which he said, Republicans are not going to defeat Hillary Clinton in November by insisting that she belongs in prison any more than we defeated Barack Obama by pretending that he was born in Kenya. Oh, good for him. It plays very well in the hall. It plays very well to those who listen to talk radio and who feel this real rage about Hillary Clinton, the challenge for Donald Trump is that he's got those voters. He, if he
2: sticks with just those voters, that's not a winning coalition. Yeah. I mean, going back to the kind of fear emphasis of this convention, when I think back over the last generation or so or two of, of presidential races, the joyful candidate tends to be the one who does well. I think they're making a big mistake by not having more joy in this convention. I really do. I think that they, Donald Trump actually, like the in, in, remarkable thing about him is he's actually fun. He's capable of being enormously fun and entertaining. They've totally blown it. Even his kids when they're speaking are not presenting a Donald Trump who is a, who's filled with life and joy. It's it's a bleak portrait.
3: Well, they of, have one more night to turn it around, right? I mean, yeah. Trump could really bring the joy tonight.
2: Yeah,
1: I don't know. He's never done that before. <laughs> um Donald Trump Jr. I thought did give a little window into, and it was a pretty well crafted speech, basically saying my father cares about common sense more than the MBAs in the corner office. And the, he cares more about the people at the job site than, um, you know, and learned from them more than from the sort of fancy pants elites. You know, when a when a son talks about their love for their father, that's, that's a kind of a winning tableau to have.
3: I feel like there's a, f- Faint air of desperation about the kids. Like every time the TV commentators are just being so negative and kind of whacked out, they return to like, "But look at those kids! I mean, if those kid those kids are great, you know, every like Republican talking head has been saying that as some great proof. I don't think that raising four lovely, attractive children makes you qualified to be president."
2: Five. Uh, my oh, my mother in law, who is a Trump supporter, circles back to this over and over again. To, to the to the to the, to the yeah there was yeah. a there was a lot of that and like, I I keep, I keep saying like but what about the three marriages <laughs> what about the adultery um, John actually one final question to you we are taping on Thursday morning most listeners will listen to this after Donald Trump gives his speech and Ivanka introduces him but just for the the fraction of people who hear this before tonight happens what should we look out for tonight
1: so in 1964 when Rockefeller did what Ted Cruz did and got booed for it did it for other reasons, but nevertheless, basically, he, Rockefeller came out and talked about extremism in the party. And uh, and Goldwater then in his speech basically rebutted Rockefeller. Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And everybody went crazy. And that was a rallying cry for conservatives and You know, is one of the important quotes you have in your bag as a conservative, and it it represented a movement that obviously ultimately changed the party and elected Ronald Reagan and the rest of it. So look for a possible rebuttal to Cruz. One of the claims from the Trump campaign in the wake of the Cruz back and forth is that uh, Trump was the bigger man, that he saw the speech and let Cruz continue anyway. If that, in fact, is is a line of uh, it's one of several, but if that's the spin that they want to. Put forward, then is there some way in which Donald Trump can show that he's the bigger man in his speech, which matters not just in the drama between Trump and Cruz, but matters in a larger sense, which is again, they're trying to convey that he has not just assert that he is has like virtue and honor and and uh uh, character, but they need to actually show it. So they actually have an opportunity here to show magnanimity, to show what unity looks like because unity requires sometimes a little painful thing. And for Donald Trump to sublimate himself, which is kind of what you would do, the traditional Trump thing would be to go like savage Ted Cruz to actually, you know, basically go nuclear on him. Reversing that would be notable. So that would be something to look for. Also is that sense of hope. Nixon's 1968 speech at the Republican convention was about the dark, turbulent times in America. And Trump is going to be talking about that. But even Nixon, who called it a dark night for America, also talked about the lift of a driving dream in his speech, which is that there is an animating sense of hope in America and that he has the pathway to get the country back on that hopeful road. So where's the hope? Those are two things I would look for. And then the third is just whether he can deliver a set piece speech. This is not his strength to deliver a telepromptered set piece speech that lifts people up. I mean, and so is it just a kind of leaden series of assertions uh, that kind of just plod through the moment? All right. We will, we will all see
2: tonight.
4: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Roger Ailes seems to be on his way out as the boss of Fox News, the network he created 20 years ago, the network that makes enormous profits and crushes its rivals and is having its best year ever. Uh, The reports on this are conflicting. As we tape, but he seems seems to be on the verge of being pushed out by the Murdoch family, especially by Rupert Murdoch's sons James and Lachlan, who who seem to be uh, using the opportunity of a sexual harassment lawsuit against him as a as an occasion to to rid themselves of Ailes, who is a both a clear, absolutely brilliant creator of propagandistic journalism and a creator of television uh, and a very canny political strategist, but clearly also a man of difficulty in temperament and perhaps grotesqueness in behavior. The lawsuit that triggered this comes from Gretchen Carlson, a Fox uh, longtime Fox host who alleges all sorts of vile uh, behavior from Ailes and and that he retaliated against her and caused her career to sink because she wouldn't perform sexual favors. Since Carlson's suit and since this started to bubble up, there have been a lot of other women who've come forward making allegations, some of which are quite old, some of which are 40, 50 years old almost. Others... There have been rumblings of other more recent things, including hints that Megyn Kelly, the star anchor on Fox these days, ha- had her own run-in with with a lascivious and gross Ailes back a decade ago. Emily, what what is it that Carlson has claimed in in her public suit, and you know why why do you think that this is the thing that has really hit Ailes hard?
3: Well, I mean, she claimed that you know he was trying to have sex with her. And there was some kind of quid pro quo part of this accusation that had to do with, you know, whether she was going to get her show or get to stay on her show. She also made an accusation against Steve Doocy, who's at Fox. And so it sounded like she was talking about a culture in which women are being kind of expected to put up with a lot of assumptions about how they're, they're gonna like really deliver sexually for various men, including Ailes, especially Ailes, or just that like they're gonna have to put up with being asked those questions. And when it first broke, I thought that the most important thing was gonna be the reaction of the other women at Fox. And I think that that has proved to be true. So first it seemed like Fox was gonna have a lot of female defenders and those people came forward. And then we started hearing that there are six other women who have made various allegations. People are talking about conduct of Ailes from back in the 60s and 70s, but also more recently. And then once it seemed like Megyn Kelly was on board for these accusations, had her own complaints about Ailes in terms of being sexually propositioned and also was supporting Carlson, then I feel like that was when the Murdochs really... decided they had to get rid of this guy because they're attached to Megyn Kelly's stardom and also because they're trying to bring their workplace into the modern era. And there's something really interesting about the um, speed and And potential severity with which they've responded to these allegations, which, you know, they haven't been proved in court or anything yet. They're really moving quite swiftly to dethrone him. And, you know, given all of Fox's complaining about political correctness, the idea that, you know, unproven allegations of sexual harassment would be enough to get rid of the guy at the top is pretty interesting.
2: It is really interesting that Fox has let this go for so long, because we know we know almost as a like a matter of epistemological certainty that lots of people knew this was happening, that women at Fox surely spoke of Talked this. Talked about it. It seems highly unlikely that people didn't at least have a, a strong inkling that this was – that if, if indeed this is Ailes' pattern of behavior and if indeed that these allegations are true and they're not all completely fabulated by the many, 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 many women who are seem to be coming forward – that they chose to tolerate this for an immensely long period of time which is really risky and and I wonder if if in even why they would let it go for as long as they did but don't we assume
1: but
3: when someone is really powerful like this there's an omerta for a certain amount of time, and it's hidden until it's not anymore. And people are afraid to come for it, and they're not sure what the response is going to be. I mean, I also think this would not be happening were it not for Bill Cosby. Like, that's the template now for this actually getting taken seriously. But think how long those women who accused Cosby had to, like you know, be shamed for and and relegated to the tabloids and essentially treated as like, you know, the dirty laundry. So I understand why women of Fox would have been afraid to come forward.
1: Yeah. Don't we think that there are still workplaces where this goes on and everybody says, oh, you know, geez, he's, you know, this and that and the other thing, but he's too powerful and who's going to take him on and it's going to become a he said, she said. And I mean, I, I feel like this is probably true of a number of workplaces. Not a lot, but, um, that this doesn't seem to me to be super. Yeah. No,
2: you're, no, you're right. you got, you guys are surely right. It is. It's just interesting because when you hear it and you start to, it start, you start to get to the forensics of it and you realize, wow, this has been going on for 50 years. Everybody knew it was going on. It's not even subtle. It's not like a, that's a, that's, you know, you have such pretty legs. It's like, have sex with me and get a better job, or have sex with me and don't you know don't lose your job. To realize how gross and blatant it is, and for the bosses to sit aside for it because presumably Ailes is so powerful and so brought them such wealth and such success, it, it, it is kind of amazing when you have this retrospective look at something and you think, wow. Then there's in Cosby's case, there was no boss tolerating it. In Cosby's case, there's no Murdoch family equivalent. Cosby was. It was his celebrity that was protecting him. In this case, there is a there is a infrastructure at Fox which had to have known, as we'll, I'm sure the litigation will will bring out, unless there's a settlement. I just find it sort of surprising. Maybe I shouldn't. <laughs>
3: There's another element to the secrecy here, which I'm fascinated by. Gretchen Carlson and I um, I think other employees signed contract agreements with arbitration clauses in it, which had an incredibly draconian confidentiality clause. None of this stuff is supposed to be public. It's all supposed to be, um, you know, arbitrated secretly in some hidden room somewhere locked up, not a public courtroom. So I think that it was – um pretty striking for Carlson to decide to come forward, sue in court, you know, with with a lawyer just to begin with. Like that, you know, whether she gets a settlement at this point, it's so public, it seems like the Murdochs will pay her off. But that is going to be totally at odds with her contract. And it's a good celebrity moment of shining um, a spotlight on what I think is just a really dangerous legal development that so many of these employee and consumer contracts now without people really appreciating it or taking disputes like this or or purporting to take them out of the public arena
2: emily under the terms of the fox contract as far as you can tell is it in is the mere act of filing a public lawsuit itself void your your right to to win anything
3: I I think so. I mean, look, when I was reading the language this morning, it said, you know, all the filings, materials related to the matter are going to be in secret arbitration. Okay, that's fine. But then it said anything relevant. It just seemed like uh, anything relevant to the underlying disputed issue. It seems like, yes, she is not supposed to go file in court publicly and she is not supposed to be giving any kind of or
2: what or they can sue her.
3: Or they can sue her and they can say, yeah, exactly. They can sue her. They could say, you violated your contract. You would think that that would mean she wouldn't be able to recover. I mean, she made a bet this was going to be so explosive that they were going to have to waive all of that.
2: Let let me ask a separate question. So independent of Roger Ailes' vile behavior, alleged vile behavior, he has created a network that is powered on the sunlight, the rays of golden light uh, shining off of the blonde hair and well-tanned legs of these anchors. He's hired beautiful blonde after beautiful blonde to anchor shows on his Fox News channel. Is that okay?
3: Yeah. Uh. <laughs> this is the moment where everyone brings up the, um, the Fox studio sets that are translucent the, so they can show the legs of these beautiful women. I mean, I just, like... How is this really different, or is this just a different degree of emphasis on good looks and youth, especially for women in TV news? I don't know, John. What do you think?
2: Well, I mean, uh, John, keep in mind that John is a beautiful leggy blonde. I would just <laughs> point that out. Uh, the, they don't. They don't. The sets. You it,
3: could sit behind a translucent desk, and it would all
2: be good. They, the sets that face the nation don't don't do justice to John's legs. I just uh. want to point that out. <laughs>
1: Um, well, I mean, obviously, you know, when I think about my mother's own career, she was obviously very attractive, and that w- it was certainly contributed, and she would say this, uh, where she's still alive, that contributed to her being hired in one sense. On the other hand, it was also a huge barrier for the many years she tried to get on the air, and they wouldn't let her, because they thought, oh, you're just some, like, attractive woman, you don't know anything. So, I mean... Fox isn't the only one that judges their anchors, male and female, by their looks. It clearly has done something, you know, it, it clearly makes more of a pedestal for them to sit on in Fox than the other networks. So it is of a, it's a, it's a, it's an extreme on a scale that others are also playing on, though. So I'm trying to figure out what the, how to categorize it other than to say it's the farthest end of the scale, but, you know, it's a scale everybody else is playing on, too. But it's okay. Is it okay? Well, it's okay. If, Look, if you, as you would say, as you would argue, it's okay because the market, if the market doesn't like it, the market won't. I mean, it's a... Now, the the alternative is, wait, but this isn't a pure market event. It's a news. It's about news, and there are, you know, you should do things that are... Follow certain standards in news uh, because it's a part of our role in a democracy. So are you making that claim, or are you making it on, like, is it okay in terms of
2: gender roles and that kind of thing. I am no, I'm not making it on market grounds. On market grounds, it's clearly really efficient. It works. There are lots of things that work in the market that we should still abhor and and criticize. Right.
3: But how do we separate this from just the question of can looks and beauty factor into whether you make it on television? Which, obviously, they do. And there is a different standard for men and women. And some of this involves, you know, race as well as other issues. Like, so what, I don't know. I mean, I'm not exactly sure, like, where we draw the line here in deciding what's not okay.
1: That's what, well, oh, that's what I'm fumbling with. Yeah.
2: Presume it is okay. Presume it's it's fine. You know, because looks are important. You want you you are more likely to be receptive to ideas that are delivered to you by attractive people. Is it okay for Roger Ailes when bringing women into work for him to make them twirl? No. Was he doing that? He was doing that. <laughs> no. Yeah. He, no. He, he asked them to twirl. No. But but, hmm. why, but why? Why not?
3: Because it's demeaning.
2: Yes, it's demeaning. Hmm. Emily you agree
3: I don't recommend you asking your job candidates to twirl in front of you David as you're hiring it does seem like sort of well
2: but I don't taste. but I but my I the, the job I'm hiring for is not to be a, a a visual you know a visual icon and a visual medium
3: I guess you could argue that what Ailes was doing was just like surfacing what is clearly part of Of the job attributes he's looking for in these candidates. On the other hand, it's demeaning. I mean, I guess he could start asking the men to twirl too.
2: Yeah, that would be good. Let's go to uh, cocktail chatter. John, when you are twirling, we're twirling for uh, Mrs. uh, Dickerson to show off your legs to see if you qualify. Uh, What will you be chattering about?
1: I'm going to be, I guess I'll be chattering about electro. The Moto Man, which was this seven-foot-tall robot. At the 1939 World's Fair, Westinghouse produced this robot, and it's among its skills, basically, were that it could move under its own power, and then it could talk, although it just basically played a tape inside. But among its skills was that it smoked. And so... This was like a huge piece of news in the 1939 uh, that this automated thing could um, smoke. And so I'm just wondering what the equivalent now would be if you created a robot. What
2: thing could it do? It took selfies. It would take selfies. That's good. It would take selfies. Yes.
1: I think that's probably right. There you go. That's what I was looking for is what is the cultural equivalent today? And just a coda for the Electro the Moto Man. So Electro the Moto Man basically just disappears. Um It reappears in a movie called Sex Kittens Go to College, which I didn't know existed. But then I watched the trailer, and you should go watch the trailer. Maybe you should go watch the trailer, particularly on a site called Trailers from Hell. And uh, I also was not familiar with the term psychotronic, which is apparently a word relating to a certain kind of movie, which is sort of science fiction and horror, low budget and terrible by, you know panned by the critics but you really should go watch you talk about your sexism <laughs> um anyway the robot is uh called thinko in the piece and um thinko picks a new uh, professor for the university and guess what the professor is a uh is a stripper from las vegas american culture is a funny thing
2: directed by roger ailes <laughs>
1: Um, anyway, so, uh, uh, Electro the Moto Man, um, is now in an, a small Ohio museum living out
2: the rest of his life. Emily, what is your chatter?
3: I am, um, interested in various voting rights suits developments this week. So the fifth circuit court of appeals, um, didn't quite strike down the Texas voter ID law, but told the officials in Texas that they, um, that it discriminated against Black and Hispanic residents. There are about 600,000 people who appear, at least according to the plaintiffs, not to have valid voter ID. And so the court directed Texas to make it easier for people to vote suggesting perhaps that voter registration cards could be a valid form of ID. So this matters both just in terms of Texas and who actually is enfranchised in November, and then more broadly this whole question of how far the court's going to go in letting states claim that they're fighting voter fraud by making it harder for people to vote. This was A real limit. Texas had a pretty extreme voter ID law, and if this um, appeals court had let that stand, that would have emboldened states elsewhere. So there's some kind of backing off going on. And then meanwhile, in Virginia, there are 200,000 people who Governor McAuliffe tried to re-enfranchise. These are people who committed crimes, have been out of prison. Virginia has a very old and old fashioned statute that doesn't allow you to vote if you committed a crime, and this is a lawsuit trying to prevent the governor's order allowing people to go to vote from going through and The theory is that he should have um, basically pardoned them one by one that he couldn't just pass a statute that collectively allowed these folks to vote so that 's one to watch I mean you know if uh, <laughs> it seems like a technicality, but it's one that would affect a lot of people and you know when you think about all of the racial implications of these disenfranchisement efforts, and and then the idea that in Virginia, you know, a state that is changing in a lot of ways and becoming less Republican. You can see why the forces that don't want these folks to vote would be trying to press this lawsuit. On the other hand, um, there's this real claim of justice at stake here. So I'm interested in how that suit develops.
2: All right. I am going to do a a double log rolling chatter once for me once for john the for me some of you have asked me over the years does atlas obscura have a podcast atlas obscura now has a podcast and i want to urge you beg you in fact implore you to give it a listen it's a podcast i'm hosting it's called escape plan you can search for atlas obscura in the itunes store you also can find it on our website atlasobscura.com and it's a podcast about road tripping. I took a road trip, uh, one-day road trip with uh, my colleague, Rehan Harmansi, And it's all about sort of trying to evoke the feeling of being on a road trip. So Escape Plan from Atlas Obscura, subscribe and and rate it. But only if you're going to give a good rating. The other thing for John, I want to point out that there are whistle-stop events galore coming up. So you can go see John in New York. You can see him in San Francisco. You can see him in D.C., DC show is going to be August 16th, and you can go to Slate.com slash live to get tickets for the whistle stop, whistle stop tour, which John will not be conducting from the back of a train, but maybe he will next time. Maybe if it's a big enough, if it's a big enough hit, he will get his own train car and whistle stop across the whole country next time. But slate.com slash live for tickets to that. Our interns, Kevin Townsend, our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichteye is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The show is a part of the Panoply network and you can go to itunes.com slash Panoply to see the entire roster of Panoply shows. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at slate GabFest and our email address is GabFest at slate.com. Please subscribe to us and iTunes and leave a comment and rating. It helps us a lot. You can search for slate political GabFest in the iTunes store for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week.
1: 18- Plus.